right, good morning. Welcome to Sunday school on a cold, cold morning. Um, I think we'll have some Uh, let, me, let me open us in prayer this morning. Father, we're grateful for your love, for the faithfulness that you show to us uh, day by day and week by week. We're thankful for the first day of the week, for the Lord's Day, for this day that you've set apart for us as a gift, um, that we might um, be renewed in our covenant with you, Father, and that we might um, have a day of, of rest and um, of leisure, of um, enjoyment of one another and of fellowship. Uh, a day that we anticipate the resurrection. Um, we pray that your spirit would dwell with us now during Sunday school as we continue to consider the work of your son and um, his uh, fundamental um, centrality of his work and his person to our salvation. Uh, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, good morning. So we are continuing um, our study of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, today, as you'll see on your handouts, we're going to pick up on uh, chapter 8 and paragraph 3. Um, chapter 8 of the Westminster Confession is entitled, Of Christ the Mediator. Um, and uh, uh, several weeks ago, um, before our Christmas break, we looked at the first two paragraphs of that uh, chapter. And so I'm going to begin by um, reading those uh, paragraphs. They're not printed on your handout, but just to um, put them back in the forefront of your mind. Of Christ the Mediator, our confession states in first paragraph in that chapter, it says, it, it pleased God, so it was God's pleasure, in his eternal purpose, reflecting back to that eternal decree, to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and man. We talked um, several weeks ago about how um, God's election, God's choosing of the Lord Jesus is the basis for his election of all of his beloved who are uh, one with Christ. Um, they are uh, those who receive um, all the blessings of God's grace and salvation in the beloved, uh, in Christ, as Paul says in Ephesians 1 to be the mediator. Um, Christ is the one who will mediate uh, between um, God and man, or God and humanity. Uh, the prophet, priest, and king, and that um, uh, trifold description of his work um, is unpacked in great detail in the uh, shorter and larger catechisms, what that means. The head and savior of his church, the heir of all things, Christ is the one in whom all of the promises of God are yes and amen, and in him we also are made inheritors of those promises. And judge of the world, unto whom he, that is God, did from all eternity give a people. Uh, we are chosen in Christ uh, before the foundation of the world, as Paul puts in, in Ephesians 1, to be his seed and to be by him in time, so the, the, the election, um, the choosing um, is in eternity or before eternity. Um, but in time, we are then redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified, walking through um, that um, uh, process of uh, development of our salvation that takes place in time. And of course, we um, await uh, both final and full sanctification, even now, as well as full 
uh, glorification um, that will come in the resurrection. Paragraph or chapter, I'm sorry, paragraph two of chapter eight. Uh, the Son of God, and this is where we see sort of Christology, the uh, the nature of Christ, the natures of Christ, and the one person, um, what we believe regarding the incarnation. How is it that Christ became this mediator between God and man? The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father. Um, the Nicene Creed um, is the foundation of that statement. Um, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature. So the man's nature, humanity nature, was added to the divine uh, person. Um, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance. So Christ is both of one substance with the Father and also of the substance of the human woman, Mary, so that the two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. So that just puts those statements there back before you as we jump into new material today as we continue to reflect on the person of Jesus. So at the top of your handout, um, uh, you will see um, uh, paragraph 3 from this same chapter, chapter 8, um, printed. And I'm going to read that. We'll talk about it uh, for a few minutes. The Lord Jesus and his human nature, thus united to the divine, right, um, the, the Lord Jesus always, um, as the Son of God, possessed a divine nature, but he received a human nature in time, um, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above all measure. Um, the Spirit uh, was given to him. And, of course, that's part of what we um, see at the baptism of our Lord Jesus. One of the things that we remember, particularly this Epiphany Sunday, is the way in which the Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove and filled him, um, anointed him for his calling. Um, and so his public ministry begins there um, in Matthew 3, um, where um, the Spirit falls upon him. Having in him, in Christ, that is, the Lord Jesus, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And the writers, divines there rely on the writing of Paul in Colossians that in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hid, in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell. Um, again, a reference to Colossians 1, that in God, I'm sorry, in Christ, all the fullness of deity um, should dwell. To the end that being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth. Um, an echo there of John 1 he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of a mediator and surety, which office he took not unto himself, but was thereunto called by his Father, who put all power and judgment into his hand and gave him a commandment to execute the same. Um, this is really Trinitarian theology that the writers of the Confession are doing here in this third paragraph. 
Um, and that's a really important thing to see, um, that this um, work of Christ um, is a work that is underpinned um, by the work of the whole triune God, um, that the Father um, calls the Son, um, that the Son is equipped with all that he needs um, for um, his work, and that uh, equipping takes place through uh, the power and presence of the Spirit um, who he is anointed with, whom he's anointed with. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson comments, How important it is in understanding the gospel not to fall into the trap of thinking that what happens in the incarnation is that a loving son persuades a reluctant father to forgive sinners. Now, probably none of us would explicitly articulate the gospel in that way. Um, that's a pretty bare way of putting it. But I do think that there are remnants of that at times within the way that we uh, can think about God, um, that Jesus somehow is um, you know, convincing, persuading the Father who doesn't really want to forgive, but, um, but Jesus is you know, um, talking him into it, so to speak, through his work. Um, but Ferguson says we must not believe that that's the case. To think that that way would be to drive a wedge into the consciousness of the Trinity, which there is certainly not, uh, which is certainly not there in the Scriptures. Um, the Trinity is um, three persons and one Godhead, and so there is always a unity of um, will and desire. And we find here the sense that the divines have of the cooperative participation of each person of the Trinity in the work of our salvation. Um, the Lord Jesus taking our human nature the Holy Spirit anointing that human nature, and the Father calling the Son to fulfill that ministry, putting all power and judgment into his hand that he might do so. There is a marvelous ebb and flow of the persons of the Trinity in section 3 that reflects the way in which the Trinitarian character of redemption is woven throughout the whole of the New Testament. And certainly uh, we see this Trinitarian um, activity in the Gospels and in glimpses at times. Um, it's not always, you know, super obvious, um, although Jesus does talk a great deal, particularly his relationship and the way that the Father has called him and um, given him this vocation, given him this authority, given him this um, uh, power to do the things that he is called to do. Um, but certainly as you move into the epistles, the, the, the apostles are reflecting constantly on the way in which um, the Father, Son, and Spirit are involved in the salvation of humanity, and that there is a, um, a cooperation, as um, Ferguson puts it, or, or a cooperative participation um, of each of the persons of God. Any thoughts or questions about that kind of Trinitarian emphasis here that we see in paragraph three of this chapter? Yeah, Jeremy.
No, I think that's I think it's a fair point, Jeremy. I think that's right. Sometimes the standards, Westminster standards, get I think an unfair um, rap of being just kind of scholastic theology and all. This, but they're really doing a lot of biblical theology um, throughout their work, and certainly this paragraph stands out in that regard in terms of. Uh, just basically direct quotations from um, different parts in the New Testament to describe the work of Christ. They're not trying to, you know, boil down or reconcile uh, necessarily um, or synthesize synthesize all of those statements. They're simply stating them in, in concert with the apostolic witness to the person of Christ. Um, you know, you have... Um, in Colossians 1, of course, and John 1, um, two of the major um, places where um, the apostles give kind of Christological descriptions of Jesus, um, you know, John 1 to 18, and then the Christ hymn there in, in Colossians 1. Um, so, yeah, I think that's right. It's a great, a great point. Anything else that stands out here about this Trinitarian character of God's redemption of humanity? All right, let's, um, let's keep moving then. I want to spend some time with um, this uh, next um, paragraph. I think one thing to take away from this morning is, um, and this is not anything that you haven't thought about before probably, but just to reaffirm this reality, I think a summary of this paragraph here, paragraph four, which is so uh, lovely um, and creed-like, um, in the term way that it summarizes the work of Christ, um, which both, it's interesting, right, to think about both the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed um, are dominated by descriptions of what Jesus did, right? They don't spend a lot of time, the Nicene a little bit more, and some of the metaphysics there at the beginning of the way in which uh, God is related to himself, um, but really, both of the Nicene and Apostles' creeds focus most of their attention on the work of the Lord Jesus in his incarnation, um, his life, death, resurrection, and coming um, in judgment on the last day. And, um, the, the reason for that is that the scriptures teach, and this paragraph summarizes well, the reality that everything hinges on Christ, right? Everything depends upon what Jesus has done um, in his incarnation um, for the salvation of humanity. Everything um, that you hope for in terms of the last day, everything that you um, experience now in terms of the forgiveness of your sin and the hope of resurrection, the peace that you have with God, all of that is um, dependent entirely upon the work of the Son and his faithfulness on your behalf, both in time and space 2,000 years ago, um, also um, presently right now at the Father's right hand. There's this deep kind of personal reality, these historical claims really that Christianity makes about what happened in a man called Jesus um, who lived in Israel 2,000 years ago and now lives today in um, heaven in God's um, all of our salvation is comprehended and caught up in the work of this man. And not his teaching so much, though his teaching matters and is important, but what he actually did physically in his flesh 
um, is what is emphasized here. And I, I love that sort of just um, uh, historical, fleshly, personal nature of what we confess and believe matters regarding our um, salvation. And that's, I think, wonderfully um, summarized here in this paragraph. Let me read it for us. This office, that is the office of um, redemption, the Lord Jesus did most willing, or office of the mediator, being the mediator and bringing redemption. This office, the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, right? And it, again, you see that concert between the persons of the Trinity. God was pleased, we read in paragraph one of this chapter, um, to, to elect the Lord Jesus, to call him. And the Lord Jesus most willingly undertook and responded to the um, vocational call of his father, the election of the father that he would do this work. Um, there's this joyful participation. Um, there's no conflict between the father and the son in terms of the desire for the redemption of humanity, for a bride to be won and given to the son. This office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that he might discharge, he was made under the law. So in order for him to do this work, he had to be made man. He had to be put under the law, so to speak, and did perfectly fulfill it. Um, and you can read the Gospels. Um, this is a large part of why the Gospels spend so much time on the, the teaching ministry of Christ and on the healings of Christ and on the way that Jesus um, engaged with human beings in their sin, um, the way that he lived among them. Um, he was fulfilling the law at every point. Uh, and again, not just sort of the, the floor of the law, not just the bare minimum requirements of what the law required, but he was fulfilling the law to the uttermost, um, to the end. He was truly loving God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind, and his neighbor as himself. Um, Jesus is doing that constantly uh, throughout the Gospels. And actually, that's a really good lens to read the Gospels through. How is it in this pericope, this narrative, in this chapter, how is Jesus loving God with his whole heart, strength, soul, and mind, and how is he loving his neighbor um, as himself and therefore fulfilling the law? Um, so he fulfilled the law in his earthly life, um, and we read about that in great detail, um, at least three years of it in the Gospels. And he endured most grievous torments immediately in his soul. Um, so there was no um, you know, it was, it, was a, it was real suffering, real torment that he experienced in his soul. And we talked about this, um, how Jesus received uh, not only a true human body, but also a true human soul in his incarnation and most painful sufferings in his body. Um, um, and here, of course, um, the divines are referring explicitly to um, the passion of Christ and to his suffering um, in the hours before his death and in his death itself, was crucified and died. Um, the one who was um, uh, eternal or is eternal, um, who took on flesh, also is the one who died, was buried and remained under the power of death yet saw no corruption, even as Psalm 16 prophesied. On the third day he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered. Notice that emphasis on the continuity of the flesh of Jesus, 
The same flesh that he received in the womb of Mary is the, is the flesh that was raised from the grave. Um, and as we'll see later, is the same flesh that um, is now at the Father's right hand. With which also he ascended into heaven. So the same flesh, the same body. And there sitteth at the right hand of his Father. What is he doing? He is making intercession. That is the primary teaching of the New Testament in terms of the present activity of Christ, making intercession for his people, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. John Calvin um, summarizes all of this. This is one of my favorite quotations in the Institutes. Um, it's a wonderful um, sort of lyrical summary of the work of Christ. Um, he says, we see that our whole salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. Um, Calvin wants us to look at Jesus in order to understand what it means that we are saved and redeemed. We should therefore take care not to derive the least portion of it from anywhere else of our salvation. If we seek salvation, we are taught by the very name of Jesus that it is of him. Um, Jesus, of course, is the uh, Greek version of the Hebrew name, Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves. And that is who he is, and the salvation of the Lord for his people. If we seek any other gifts of the Spirit, they will be found in his anointing. We share um, in the Spirit's anointing of Christ, and that is how we, in fact, receive the Spirit, is through our union with him. If we seek strength, it lies in his dominion. If purity, in his conception. If gentleness, it appears by his birth. For by his birth, he was made like us in all respects, that he might learn to feel our pain. If we seek redemption, it lies in his passion. If acquittal, in his condemnation. If remission of the curse, in his cross. If satisfaction, in his sacrifice, if purification, in his blood, if resurrection, I'm sorry, if reconciliation, in his descent into hell, if mortification of the flesh, in his tomb, if newness of life, in his resurrection, if immortality, in the same, if inheritance of the heavenly kingdom, in his entrance into heaven, if protection, if security, if abundant supply of all blessings in his kingdom, if untroubled expectation of judgment and the power given him to judge. In short, since rich store of every kind of good abounds in him, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. It's a wonderful quote from Calvin, um, reflecting on the way in which Christ is our life and he is our salvation and that if you want to understand what God has done for you, what God is doing for you, you must consider those questions through the lens of Jesus um, always. And I think this is really important because we can often ask that question, what is God doing in my life? How is God being faithful to me? Is he faithful to me? Is he good? And the New Testament, I mean, you can try to think about those questions from a philosophical perspective or from a perspective of just sort of your own experience, but what the scriptures are going to do for you again and again is push you back to Jesus. 
to say you can only ask and answer those questions adequately or, or truly if you consider them in light of the person of Christ and what God has done for you and is doing for you now um, and will do for you on the last day and through eternity uh, through his son, Jesus Christ. Um, however you consider God's providential care for you in your life must be understood uh, through what he has done, is doing, and will do uh, for you and his son. That's the only way to truly, biblically, I think, answer that question. Um, any thoughts about any of that? I've got some larger catechism stuff here to work through, but we don't have to. So, Any, any questions or thoughts? Paragraph four here. Yeah, Eric. In which he fulfills the law. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is an interesting question. I mean, embedded in that question is what is the point of, you know, three quarters of the Gospels, basically? Um, you know, would our redemption have been the same if Jesus had just, you know, lived in a cave for 33 years by himself and then came out of it and went into Jerusalem and, you know, was murdered by the Jews and rose on the third day? I. I mean, I, I guess we, you know, I don't know what that looks like. But so the, the point of Jesus's life up until his death is not merely, as I think sometimes is sort of assumed or implied, that he didn't sin. Yes, he didn't sin. He was flawless. He was um, not marred by human sin. But he also was actively, I think, and there's that such that there's that huge hinge that happens right in Jesus's life. We don't know. Most basically, aside from a small story about him when he was a young boy, anything that took place in the life of Jesus um, until um, his baptism by the Spirit, and then pretty clearly it seems from the Gospels chrono chronologically, three years of active ministry before his death, 
And in that time, certainly Jesus is doing far more than just not sinning. He is, he is I think he's fulfilling the law. I think he's showing um, us what it means to be a true Israelite, to be um, someone who um, studied the law, who understood it, and who lived it out, who enacted it. Um, and and in and, and that, and that way, it, it even brings, I think, further glory um, to his death because it, you know, he was, we finally had someone who did what God required and we killed him for it, um, which shows the, you know, depravity of humanity, right? Um, and, um, yeah, I think, I think those are fascinating questions to think about there, I contemplate, like, what is, what is happening there in those three years that's so crucial for us? Yeah, Jeremy and then James. No, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I, no, I think that's right, Jeremy. Certainly part of what is happening there is Jesus becomes a living illustration of what it means to um, to fulfill the law, to obey the law. And, you know, as when you go into the Westminster Confession of um, or Westminster Standards in the larger catechism and there's that um, explanation of the Ten Commandments, many of the Ten Commandments, of course, are prohibitions. Don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery. Um, but... Um, our larger catechism not only says what is prohibited by this commandment, but what is required by this commandment positively. And Jesus, I think we see in his life, a fulfillment of that. You know, he's demonstrating what it means to positively fulfill the sixth commandment, the seventh commandment, etc. Um, not only by not killing anybody, I mean, it's good that he didn't kill anybody, but um, he, <laughs> you know, he also uh, preserved and protected human life and valued it and all of those things that we, so I think that's right. Yeah, he, and he, and he he taught it and he and he lived it out as well, and that's that's right. James, yes, sir. <laughs> the time has come. He learned obedience to the things that he suffered. Is that what you mean? Yeah. 
That's right. in union with him and he is himself the lawgiver as well as the law fulfiller right um, he is the one who spoke by the prophets and um, and and you know gave the law he is the word um, and so the law itself is easy <laughs> and not burdensome um, does that make sense like um, in its um, in its essence and its giving it's not you know it's the problem is us the problem is our uh, uh, frailty and our um, uh, rebellion against God, um, but yeah, as we as we walk in these ways, um, being more and more conformed to the image of Christ, um, I think we actually experience this in our lives that um, that His yoke is easy, His burden is light. Um, that it's it's easier to go with the grain of reality than against it, basically. Um, and God is the one who is sets that sets that grain um, but, but certainly yes we also it also has to do with us being united to him as we um, walk in these ways of obedience with him all right I've got about one minute before I give things to Paul anybody else have a thought or comment Eric Yeah, and that's right. He is, there's the conflict with the authorities, the Jewish authorities and the Pharisees. But I would say also even more fundamental than that, there's throughout the Gospels a conflict between Jesus and um, Satan, right? The powers of darkness and the corruption um, that's been wrought by human sin. And so I think you see Jesus in his ministry establishing a kind of different vision of what what it is to be human, what it is to live in this world. Um, and he's doing that symbolically, right, in many ways. It's not like he's actually setting up um, 
you know, some kind of commune or something that he's telling people to come live on. Um, but he is, what he's doing is practical. It is institutional in the sense that he is cloaking men with authority um, that he is going to give to them through his union with them in the spirit to continue this. I mean, that's what we're doing today, I, I hope, is we're continuing to kick back the darkness um, and, and wrestle with Satan and, and see the works of sin and death um, be gradually diminished um, through the ministry of the church, the work, the work of Jesus today. All right, so um, that's a good place to stop, but let's just, just continue to think about these things. What does it mean for, as Calvin puts it, all of our salvation to be comprehended in Christ um, for us to continually go back to that fountain and drink from it as we seek to understand the nature of God, who he is, and what he is doing in our life. And we have to go back again and again to our Lord Jesus Christ um, to understand um, those things, to contemplate them. And um, let me pray for us, and we'll sing together. Father, we're grateful for this time. and pray that you grant us the grace to continue to reflect on the work of your Son. Uh, we praise you for him. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.